0: so i'll be honest with you that uh when i would see this woman when i'd see her walking down the street i just intentionally looked the other way or i looked down or something i judged her and i mocked her all the time and it wasn't just me it was all the guys what did what do you reckon she expected cuz we didn't we weren't the ones that made the choices that she made I didn't run from one relationship to the next like they were a blowout sale on a Black Friday. And she she mostly, anyway, kept to herself or her flavor of the month, husband or boyfriend. And it's not like when she would pass by us that she'd say hi to us either. And that's why it was nuts this one day when uh, when she raced to the center of of town and she yelled to all, all the people to come with her. And we wondered what had gotten into this woman, where'd this sudden urgency come from and this boldness really to, to, to call out to everybody that was in her path. And so I, out of sheer curiosity, I, I guess I just decided to join the crowd and, and follow this woman that we'd spent the past decade really avoiding. And she, she brought us out to this well where she got water every morning, but it was who was standing at it uh, that, that really got her so excited. And she said, okay, okay, everybody, this is Jesus, and he's the guy that I've been telling you all about, and he told me everything that I'd ever done. And he's got these words of eternal life. Y'all, need to just, y'all just need to listen to him. And she said all this, and she moved out of the way, uh, and this pretty ordinary-looking guy took center stage, and then he began to speak like nothing that I'd ever heard before. Um, somebody brought up one of their their sons, paralyzed sons, and Jesus just, he just touched, just put his hand on that kid's leg, and the kid jumped up and he started walking, and the place went berserk, and my heart was pounding out of my chest, and that was the day, I remember like it was yesterday, that was the day that I gave my life to Christ, and he is the very best thing that has ever happened to me since then. And here's what I think about, I think about all the time, what if she had never said anything to us what if she just kept her 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 mouth closed what what if she didn't invite me to come meet him myself and so you know what now I don't turn away when I walk by people I don't look down I make eye contact with folks I don't just turn around turn to the side and not pay attention to them don't do that anymore So good morning, y'all. My name is Ed Griffin Egg, and I'm one of the pastors here at my church. We're in week four of our Made for Mission series, and if you're here for the first time or if you missed some of these, I want to run through just quickly the first three. The first week, uh, we said that we are all called to be on mission. If you're a follower of Christ, if you are a Jesus follower, He has put you on this planet for a reason. And he strategically placed you sort of where you are for a reason. Then in week two, we ask the question, well, what, well, if that's true, then what's my mission? And in a nutshell, our mission is much like what Christ's mission was, and is to grow in a relationship with God and to introduce him to other folks. And then in week three, last week, um, Richard masterfully, y'all give Richard a hand. If you were here last week, awesome message. So he masterfully helped us answer this question of what's my message. And he said that it's sort of threefold. And it's I came to Jesus, I asked for help, and he is changing me. I came to him, I asked him for help, and he's changing me. And so today, we're going to answer this question, we're going to pick apart this idea of who is my mission. What's my message was last week, Who. Is my mission this week, and so I get it that i 'm supposed to share how how god 's goodness and god 's greatness has intersected with my life, but then I ask, do I just like walk up to random folks and start talking and if God has uniquely placed me and you in people 's lives to share about him, like how do I know that and and let me say, if you're here this morning and you're questioning and you're wondering and you're looking for the truth and you may not be a Christian right now, this may seem a little awkward and you may be saying to yourself, so so are you saying that I'm the mission because I'm not a, a Jesus follower? What we're going to talk about this morning, though, is still very applicable to you because as you investigate the truth claims that Jesus makes, you got to know that today's topic is a major theme in his life because it is it is truly, it's impossible to be a follower of Jesus and to ignore this subject that we're going to talk about today. We're going to mostly be in the book of John, mostly in chapter 4, but I want to look at two verses in chapter 2 first and, and, and It's verse 24 and 25, and I like the new living paraphrase in these two verses. They're a little easier for us to understand. So here's what it reads, John 2, 24 and 5. It reads, "...but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. He knew what was inside of them. He knows what's inside of you, and he knows what's inside of me." And as he started his ministry, he gives us, in, in John 2, 3, and 4, he, he gives us two polar opposite examples of the kinds of people that God loves to work in. So listen to the very next verse, which is the first verse of chapter 3. It begins with, now there was a Pharisee, super Jew, the Pharisees, super crazy religious off-the-chains Jewish guy. So there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. This Pharisee's name was Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. They were the pious ones. They were the keepers of the law. They were right in there with the scribes. They were the super crazy ultimate religious people of that day. And Jesus had a conversation with this guy named Nicodemus. We're not going to. I wish we had time, but we're not going to study that conversation uh, today, except to say that John, the the human writer of this gospel, John very deliberately places that conversation with Nicodemus right before um, the the passage that we're gonna that we're gonna study. He has this spiritual conversation jesus does with a guy that that you would expect to have it all figured out he's got all his little boxes checked he's he goes to the temple 17 times a day and he's do making all his he's the super religious guy the guy that you would look at and say that dude has got it all together sort of like a pastor you think that the pastor has it all together but here's the way the world plays that out Jesus ends up correcting some very basic beliefs that Nicodemus was holding. And so just because somebody appears to have it, whatever whatever even altogether means, just because they appear to have it all together doesn't mean that they're not still struggling with questions about their faith. It does not mean that they don't need to hear your story. It does not mean that they don't need to hear the gospel because they do need to hear the gospel. And they do need to hear... Your story, and so Jesus leaves there this conversation with Nicodemus, and he goes and he has a conversation with a woman who could not be any further on the on the religiosity spectrum scale than Nicodemus. If this is Nicodemus, this woman is all the way over here, and Jesus is making—he's really making a point. And John, when he when he penned this, he put these two things together to make the point that nobody is off limits when it comes to talking about God with. Nobody is off limits. So sort of our first point today is that everybody, everybody needs to hear the gospel. So track with me. I want to jump into John chapter 4, starting in the first six verses. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went uh, back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Now geography is going to help us To understand this passage a little bit better, we read that he left Judea, Jesus left Judea to go to Galilee. Now, most Jews would actually make this trip from Judea to Galilee longer than they would have to intentionally by taking 285 around Samaria. They take the perimeter around (laughs) Samaria because they hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans were sellouts. The Samaritans, <clears throat> many years prior to that, the Samaritans were the people that, that intermarried with the people of the land so they were only half Jewish, and the Jews hated them, avoided them, didn't want to cut And you've got to think that, that Je- his guys, Jesus' guys, were. you just have to think that they, they looked at him and they said, dude, we don't need to be in the middle of those people. We, we don't we don't need to be anywhere near them. You know how they are. We, we don't need to be... They're filthy. We don't need to be... In, they're unclean. We don't need to be anywhere near them. And so, in, in fact, in Matthew chapter 10, in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 10, Jesus tells his guys, his disciples, he says, Don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Who's the lost sheep of Israel? The Jews... Of the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus said, don't go near the Samaritans. But then Jesus himself went out of his way to go right through the middle. He took 85. He didn't take 285. He took 85 through the middle. And you know how those people are. But Jesus went through the middle through Samaria. And the scene that we're going to read in John chapter 4 is the only scene that is recorded on this trip which tells me that it's some significant stuff Happened in this narrative. Jesus says so Jesus sits down at the well by himself. So let's jump back into verse seven, starting in John four seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as uh, did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks uh, this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, as we start to answer this question about who is my mission, it is really interesting to to look at how the different people that are in this scene apparently saw this woman, this Samaritan woman, is a first, how do you reckon this woman saw herself? I think that she saw herself as a shame-filled-over-her-past, half-breed, beat-up, broken Samaritan woman. That's, what I, that's the way I think she saw herself. And then I thought, okay, uh, that's the way she thought saw herself. How did the disciples see her? Wait a minute. Where are the disciples? They passed her by on the way to go buy food, turned away from her, didn't look at her, looked down, didn't make eye contact with her. And when they come back, we'll read, when they come back, they do the exact same thing. So she sees herself pretty badly. They don't really. They they see. They don't even think she's worthy of even looking at because she's one of those people. But then, how does Jesus look at her? Here's the way I believe that Jesus sees her: that she was broken, but she was worth it. She was worth a conversation. She was worth not taking 285, but taking 85. She was worth going out of his way to meet her. She was worth crossing pretty strict social barriers. She was worth talking to. So here's a major biblical principle. Jesus sees me and you as worthy. He sees us as worthy of a conversation. He sees us, he sees inside of us John chapter 2, he said, he sees inside of us. Don't care what you've been told by other folks. Don't care. You may have the most jacked up view of yourself. Jesus says, I don't care. Your teachers may have told you from kindergarten on that you're stupid. Jesus don't care about that. You may, it, it, you may have been called any number of different names, ugly, fat. Skinny, stupid, brainiac, nerd, whatever it may be. But Jesus says that this, to this outcast woman that you are worthy, you're worthy of a conversation. So check out what happens next in verse 15, John 4:15 through 18. It reads, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. She said, I don't have a husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had not one, two, three, four, but you've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not even your husband. What you've just said is quite true. I've probably heard, and maybe you have too, 20 probably sermons that hone in on this woman's sinfulness that hone in on this woman's shame. And I'm sure that that is part of her story. I'm sure it is. And that she had lots of stuff, lots of junk from her past that she wasn't proud of. But here's the deal. In first century, in this first century culture, in this Eastern culture, it was a man-centered world, 100 billion percent man-centered world. Women were second-class citizens, seen as second-class citizens. Men had all the power. And it was completely acceptable for a man to have multiple sexual relationships. And if he wanted to divorce his wife, he just gave her a certificate of divorce and kicked her off to the curb. So it probably isn't that this woman was just jumping, bouncing around from from guy to guy. It's probably a woman, if you take the Samaritans and you take her and you take this narrative in the context of the culture that it is in, it's probably that this woman had been used And abused over and over and over and over her entire life by men. And she clearly knows what what it feels like to have uh, pain and loss. And she's surely carrying bitterness. And she's carrying anger right alongside of that shame. But here she is every day. She's not giving up. She's still going. She's still pushing forward. She's still, as Paul says, she's straining ahead day after day. She's getting up. She's going out to that well to get the water. And maybe everybody else around her had missed what Jesus saw in her because he can see your heart. Nobody else can see your heart. You can't see your friend's heart. You can't see your sons or your daughters or your mamas or your daddies. You can't see that. But Jesus can. And he obviously saw something that his disciples didn't see, that the people in that village didn't see, and we're going to find that later on in this story. So check out the best part of this narrative. It starts in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of this, because of this woman's testimony, her story. Many believed because of her story. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two more days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And the very next verse says that Jesus left for Galilee after two days. So what you had in Sychar was a revival among the Samaritans that went on the Samaritans of all people. You had a revival that went on in Samaria. How does that happen? The very woman that the people had cast aside, she was an outcast. They put her to the curb. She comes back into that village of the people that had rejected her and she does what? She just tells her story. She just. Every one of us has our story. And our stories are different. She tells them her story and she convinces them to come meet her new friend and her Savior, Jesus. And I don't picture her standing there passing flyers out because of who she was. It wouldn't be really wouldn't be that easy. She probably had to plead with people to come and to meet the man that had told her what? That had told her everything that she'd ever done. And she wouldn't take no for an answer. You know, you got to ask how many times probably... Did she have to go back into that village and beg them to come meet him? And she used her story to do that. And this is a special lady, and people don't look at her as a leader in the New Testament. She was probably one of the most dynamic leaders in the New Testament. Think about her. Think about this, that this was the very woman that the disciples passed by every day and just looked away, or they looked down. They surely didn't look at her. And it was, it was the very same people in the village, the Samaritans in the village, that the disciples saw when they went in there to get food. It never crossed their mind to share with those people. Those people never crossed their mind. But how does this woman see those people? She sees those people every day as somebody who is desperately in need of Jesus. Jesus. Who is it that you and I walk by every day and we don't even say a word? Maybe we turn and look away. Maybe we look down, but we don't say a word. Who is it that you work with that needs a bottle of that living water that Jesus is talking about? Who is it that maybe, maybe even subconsciously, we deem them unworthy of a conversation? Who is it that maybe we've decided that they're a waste of our time? I would imagine, put me in the front of the line, I would imagine that all of us have done that. We've decided they're not worth our time. They're not worth the investment. They're not worth the conversation. It ain't going to work. Let me just move on down the road. Listen to this story. A guy named Tony Campolo wrote a book. The name of the book is Life Lessons from Unexpected Places and Unlikely People. And he wrote this. I want to read this to you, a little narrative. He said, A new recruit went into training at Parris and hoping to become a Marine. He was one of those young men who seemed just a little bit out of step with the norm, and he easily became the subject of ridicule for those uh, uh, folks who enjoy picking on offbeat people. In this particular barracks where this young Marine was a sign there was an extremely high level of Campolo uses the word meanness. He said there's an extremely high level of meanness. The other young men did everything they could to make a joke of the new recruit and to humiliate him. And one day somebody came up with this bright idea that they could scare the you know what out of this young Marine by dropping a disarmed hand grenade on the floor and pretending it was about to go off. And everybody in the barracks knew what was going on and they were all ready to get a big laugh on this kid's expense. So they threw the hand grenade down into the middle of the floor and they screamed, you know, it's live, it's about to explode. And all of them fully expected that young man would flip out and probably jump out of the window. But instead, that young Marine fell on that grenade and hugged it to his stomach and screamed for everybody to run for their lives that they'd be killed if they don't. And the other Marines in that barracks froze in stillness and shame Because they realized that the one that they had scorned was the one that was ready to lay down his life for them. And so it was with Christ. You and I don't know what's inside of folks. We don't have the vaguest idea. Even people that we're in relationship with, we don't know what's inside of them. We don't know what's going on in their lives. And I think that Jesus in this this narrative in John 4... I think we're going to come back to that you don't know in a second. But I think in, in John 4, I think he's teaching multiple lessons to, to, to multiple audiences. And his primary focus for the three years of his ministry was to make disciples that could go change the world. And he used every scenario to teach a ministry lesson. And this first lesson, and it doesn't apply to every, the big part of it does, but the, in the weeds it doesn't apply to everybody We're all called to share our faith. But there are certain people who have the gift of being an evangelist. And my guess is that Jesus wanted all of his disciples to have that gift of evangelism because he'd hand them the keys to the kingdom uh, two years later to go change the world after he ascended back to the Father. And these guys that hung out with him would go spread the gospel. And so again, who is our mission it is everybody who is our mission. Everybody is our mission. And so if you have found the, and you find it relatively easy to share your faith with other people, you probably have the spiritual gift of evangelism. If, if you have seen even God use you <clears throat> to reach a number of people, there's probably a good chance that God's giving you that gift. And maybe you've never shared necessarily your faith with someone, But God has put you in a place and you're an influencer in other areas of your life. And with the right training, maybe you can recognize that gift too. Evangelists see opportunities that other people don't. They're, they're able to move an ordinary conversation into something where the gospel is brought up. Sharing their faith is not a duty that they feel guilty about. It's a privilege that they just love to do. I have a friend. His name is Stephen has become a good friend. We met about four months ago. But he's become a pretty good friend. The most uncanny ability to do what I just said, and I don't really have it. He can take any conversation, organically and just naturally, and he turns it. You could be talking about anything. Like, you could be talking about picking out the wood floors for a house that you're building and he says, yeah, that reminds me of the wooden cross that Jesus sacrificed his life on, and he's sharing the gospel. Any kind of conversation, he's, all of a sudden he's presenting the gospel just like that. And, and many of you probably are thinking, I'm pretty sure that I don't have that gift. I'm pretty sure that's not me, so am I off the hook? And the lesson, one of the lessons that we get from Jesus and this Samaritan woman is this. It is that God has strategically placed you where you're at to reach one or some. God is not an accident where you are. It's not an accident who your friends are. It's not, uh, hey, can you flip to that slide, that fill in the blank? God has strategically placed you where you're at to reach one or some. And so it, it just doesn't happen by accident. You know, notice this woman, this woman at the well, she goes back to the town where she's from, probably was outside of her comfort zone a little bit, but she felt compelled to share with her family and those that she did life with, the people that she's even a little bit in relationship with. And there's a Greek word that kind of sums this up, and it's used throughout the New Testament, and it's the word ekos. It's spelled in English, transliterated. It looks like oikos, but it's ekos, And it was the ancient Greek equivalent to a household or a house or a family or this this larger sort of family unit, usually made up of about 10 or 15 people. It's all over the New Testament. I give you a couple of them. Luke chapter 8, the demon-possessed man was told to return to his household and describe the things done for him. Return to your household and tell your story. In John 4, the centurion's household was saved following the healing of his son. In Acts 10, Cornelius, which was a righteous man who feared God with all of his household. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer had his whole household baptized with him at midnight. So, what does that look like for me and you? God has strategically and intentionally placed you and your family in your friendships, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, to reach the people that you're kind of already doing life with. And so, okay, I get that, that this is something I should do. I get it. But I, I just still, I kind of, I don't know. And I'm going to, can I be totally transparent with y'all? For me, personally, my family is the hardest Beyond a doubt, my own family is the hardest. And and I know in in my mind, if I truly thought about the consequences, and if y'all, if you truly, truly thought about the consequences, maybe it wouldn't be that hard. Because eternity in hell, separated from God, that's the consequences. Eternity, that's forever. Forever. In hell, those are the consequences. And oddly enough, 85% of professing Christians believe in hell. As an aside, I'm not sure how that number is not 100%. But 85% anyway of professing Christians believe in heaven, but only 65% believe in hell. I think it's because it doesn't taste good. The thought of that doesn't taste good. We don't think about it. We don't talk about it. You don't hear that much. And, and, the, and the reality is it is horrible. So, again, who is the mission? Everybody needs to hear the gospel. Everybody needs to hear the good news. But I believe it's most effective in the boundary of some kind of a relationship because beating strangers over the head with a Bible is not the most effective evangelistic tool, I don't think. Back to this transparency thing. What about a son to a father or a son to a mother? From personal, my own personal experience, I can just tell you, yeah, that's tough. It's very tough. A couple of months ago, probably eight or nine weeks ago, on a Saturday, my wife Susan and I took my mom and dad to lunch. Mind you, my mom and dad are not believers. My mom and dad are super Super Jewish. They're 82 and 86 years old. We take them to lunch. Ed's country cooking on Woodrow Farm Road, and we're standing there in the line, um, waiting to order. And and Susan looks at me and she says, "Ask him." And I said, "Ask him what?" She said, "Ask him." I was preaching the next the next day. She said, "Ask him to come." I said, "You've lost your mind." I mean, my my dad. Is a hardcore military guy. Ask him. I said I'm not doing it. She said, "Ask him." I shook my head. I'm like, "I'm not. No way." Am I fixing to ask them to church? She shoots me an elbow in the ribs. I said, "Stop. Um, it's not happening. Enough." And we're still at the front of the line It is. So she stopped. We walk on. We order our food. We get over there, and we sit down to eat. And it's silence. We're sitting there, and it's silence. And my my sweet, gentle, meek wife of 30 years, total silence at the table, she just breaks the silence with, hey, Ed's preaching tomorrow. Y'all ought to come to church. I absolutely thought I was going to die. I almost flipped over backwards in my chair because my mom and dad have virtually never Grace the door of a church in their 80 plus years on the planet. But you know what my dad said? He said, Okay. I could not believe it. He sat right there. He said, Okay. And I was in, thank God, I was preaching out of the Old Testament. Um, I, was in the, I was in the book of Micah. But you know what? And my mom wasn't feeling good, so she didn't come. But my dad sat right there. And he heard the gospel. Jesus was preached the gospel was proclaimed and I was a little nervous I mean I, trust me I was a little nervous when, it, when the worship service was over with my knees knocking I walked down them stairs and we went out there and my dad put his arm around me and he said you make a pretty good case my dad my Jewish dad said you made a pretty good case and I have no clue as to what God is going to do with that I don't have the vaguest idea but I but I know this. I know that Jesus is the answer for everybody. And everybody doesn't need, mean some people. Everybody means everybody needs to hear the good news. And they need to hear it probably from somebody that they have some sort of a relationship with. You don't know what's going on in people's lives. You don't. You don't know what's inside of them. You have no idea. what it, Even the people you're doing life with, you don't always know what's going on in their lives but if you're a believer you know the one that can provide the healing you know the one that can provide the comfort the peace and the joy you know the healer y'all watch this y'all watch this video it's a two or three minute video i want to give y'all a, a just a simple prayer a guy named a pastor in <clears throat> new song church in oceanside california it's one one sentence and it, but it's a life-changing sort of little prayer. And I'm going to ask you, pray it on a daily basis, and here it is. Lord, I don't ask you for much today, but would you give me your heart for the lost? Not, not, not my heart, not your neighbor's heart. Lord, give me your heart for the lost. And I'm going to say, can we practice? Y'all say that together with me. You ready? One, two, three. Lord, I don't ask you for much today, but would you give me your heart for the lost? What if you stuck that on your mirror in your bathroom? What if you put it on the dashboard of your car, on your steering wheel, or on a book that you're looking at all the time on your desk at work? Somewhere, stick that little that little prayer. It'll change the way you walk through the day. It'll change the way you walk by people. It'll, if we really thought about it, if we really prayed on it, we would weep for the lost. There's not enough weeping for the loss that goes on. Somehow it's like we wear this Christian thing as a badge like we're part of a secret society and you may not be part of our secret society. That is so jacked up. That is not... We should be crying for the people that are lost. Not sitting in our little holy huddle. That, that is not what Jesus would have for us. And I think we don't want to think about... We don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about the consequences but if we would really ask God to give us His heart for the lost and the folks that don't know Him, it would be different. Today you may be sitting here and you may well be the one that doesn't know Him. You may be questioning and searching, and that is a good thing, but you've got to be honest in the search. You've got to be willing to accept the truth when it is in front of you. And I don't know what's going on in your life. Jesus does. I don't have the vaguest idea what's going on in your life, but God does. He knows it all. And if it's the shame and the fear that the Samaritan woman felt, then Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. He's the one that promises to give us his peace. He is the one that says, no, 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 no. You are worthy of a conversation. No, you are worthy of my sacrifice You are worthy of the peace that only I can provide you. Jesus is the painkiller, and fear is a liar. Fear is an absolute liar. And if today is the day that you say, I want that peace, I want to appease my fear, I want to put my fear away, and I want you, Lord, to give me that peace, all you got to do is say, "Okay." You got to say two things. Lord, I'm tired of living in the fear and in the shame and the regrets, and I'm putting all that in. My, I'm putting all of that away. I'm putting all that. I'm kicking it away. And number two, I'm just say, "I believe you died on that cross. I believe you were sure enough dead, and I believe that you were sure enough alive three days later, and you did that for me." To provide me a way to live with you forever, and so if you if you did say yes to that this morning, y'all close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. If you if you did say that this morning, I want you to pray this prayer with me, and you can pray it quietly, you can pray it out loud, you can pray it sitting down, you can pray it standing up. If you want to come right down here and get down on your knees, do whatever you want to do. It doesn't it doesn't make any difference. This is between you. And God, but here's what I want you to say. I want you to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I am, but I'm sorry. And I'm willing to turn from that sin this morning. And Lord, I receive you as my Savior. I receive you as my Lord, and, and, and I want to make you the leader of com- uh, my life, and I'm committed, to, Lord, to following you for all the days of my life in Christ's name. And so here's the deal. If you just said that, If that just happened, um, the heavens are screaming with joy. And we are too. And we want to come alongside of you in that walk. Turn it back to that connection card that's in front of you. As hard as it is for that pen to write on those glossy pieces of paper, which we're going to fix here in the next few weeks as well, scribble that down that that just happened to you because we want to walk that journey with you. And we're, we're doing the God Plunge next Sunday. It's our next God plunge. We're going to be doing it here. If you've gotten saved ten seconds ago, or ten years ago, or ten months ago, and you've never been baptized, it's time for you to get wet next Sunday. And so we want we want you to do that. You can let us know on that connection card as well. So let me pray for us, and then I'm going to call Richard up. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you so much for for just being who you say you are. Lord we thank you for knowing us inside and painting Lord a picture of us as worthy of a conversation when we may look in the mirror and see nothing but shame and regret and unworthiness and unlovableness. Lord thank you for telling us that we are worthy of that conversation. so Lord I lift our entire church body up to you Lord I I lift our city, our state, our country. Lord, my prayer is that everyone that doesn't know you, because everyone is worthy of that conversation, Lord, that everyone will come to know you. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.